allegorical life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership, and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan, and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction, for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis, security, and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak, and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, it's really great to be uh, back chatting again for another episode. This is our first episode for 2020, and in fact, the world's really changed since COVID-19 entered our collective experience of life. Before we get into that, I thought you might like to share what's changed for you on a personal level uh, and in your working life since we last did an episode of The Allegorical Life. Uh, things have changed a lot, actually. Um, I left the government at the end of the year, uh, which was a big decision, uh, having um, served in public life for uh, the best best part of 35 years, either as the first 10 years as a volunteer and over 25 years on staff in numerous different positions. So it was um, a, a brave step, I think. Well, some people may not think that, but I thought that. Brave step to leave a secure employment after so long at the age of 55. But... Um, it's, it's turned out to be as I hoped it would be, as much as I had to move through the fear and anxiety of giving up that sort of security, but to be a lot more independent in my thinking and my public speaking, while still, of course, maintaining uh, common sense and respect and due regard to people. Um, so I've stepped into advisory, which is advising major corporations, companies, uh, small to medium enterprises and individuals on matters to do with ethics, uh, resilience and climate. Uh, and, and disaster risk, which is quite exciting. I'm doing work in uh, public policy advocacy in that regard by uh, providing public commentary on particular aspects of climate and disaster risk um, and ethics as well, and uh, also teaching in academia. And I'm a, a sessional academic with the National Security College at the Australian National University, doing some work with Melbourne University and, um, and also some work with Queensland University of Technology. So... Uh, on top of finishing my PhD. So um, there's lots to do. and it, it gives me an opportunity to deepen my knowledge and understanding of, you know, the ethical premise of leading people through crisis and adversity, which is the basis of my PhD, but also helping uh, people understand the world more significantly, I think, about the intersections between us and nature and climate and natural hazards and reframing that narrative uh, to be much more generous and considerate of the needs of the climate and the needs of the planet while still respecting and regarding those things that we want to do as humans. Mark, just talking about our relationship with the wider world, what's been your personal experience of COVID? It's a mixed response, I think. Uh, it's a really dark cloud with a silver lining. So it's caused suffering to many people, and that, that always um, upsets me, of course, as a Buddhist. I... No one wants to see anybody suffer. I've, I've watched local businesses, particularly uh, in the township of Yass, do it really tough. And um, people initially in tears because they put their life savings into their businesses. They're all small businesses, small enterprises, and and had this sort of shock reverberate through the th- uh, through their business and through their town, and they had to close their doors quite quickly. And they had little kids and mortgages and 
those sort of things. And so they had to, to innovate and restructure and even refinance, and most of them have done it. Um, it's turned, turned out okay for them, but to watch them go through it was pretty hard. Uh, and that's just an exemplar or an anecdote of, you know, what's happened across society and people losing their jobs and and so on and so forth. So it's been difficult on one level, but on another level it's been refreshing because I think for many people, and myself included, it's been a reframing and a rebalancing as to what's important. And all adversity does this, Jordan. I've seen it my entire career that people hold a set of values or are held to a set of values. So society or the economy or the marketplace holds them to a set of values. Um, Adversity comes along and those values change and they become much more personal and, and much more liberating and much more important than the held values that were in existence prior to adversity. So COVID-19 has been a global exemplar of that rupture of human value. And um, the statistics, somewhere between 40 and 90% of people are saying they do not want to go back to the way things were. And Mark, what are you drawing from the global landscape that's come about because of COVID? It's really shown to me the limitations of uh, global leaders in their capacity to be compassionate towards or or empathise towards their constituency. I'm not going to talk about individuals, but I think anyone listening to this podcast will soon work out how brutal the response has been in some countries to what should have been a much more compassionate and considered response, and it simply hasn't been. If I take Britain as an example, and I'm not going to speak too much to the people, but I do want to speak to the ideology that, that underpins uh, US, Australian, uh, UK economies and marketplaces and political regimes, which is this thing called neoliberalism. If I go to Britain, every time the Prime Minister or the Foreign Minister stepped up to the podium, there were there were three signs, stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. And I was appalled to see that. And I'll tell you why, Jordan, because the, the stay at home to protect the NHS uh, was to me was as about offensive as it could be because it treated the system like it was a sick person and the system needed to be protected. Uh, and so therefore people should stay at home, stay out of the system so the system survives. That The system is not a person. The system is simply there to serve the people, but the people ended up serving the system. Old people were moved out of the hospitals who were sick and put into care homes, and many of them died uh, from exposure to the virus uh, by being taken out of a relative environment of safety into a less safe environment in order for the system to be protected to make space for other people, a system that had not adequately anticipated pandemic, albeit it had been on the top of people's company and institutions' risk registers for many, many years. It hadn't actually operationalised those plans at all, and then when the pandemic turned up, of course, we, we find ourselves in a mass panic about how we're going to cope or how's the system going to cope with the influx of sick people. So I, I found that disturbing. Um, I found in other parts of the world um, a total dismissiveness of the effect of the virus, that the economy was king, uh, that the, you know money was took primacy over everything else. I, I genuinely understand the need for a, a well-functioning economy to give people the relative liberties and freedoms to be who they want to be and do what they want to do. I think that's very important. 
but the economy is also there to serve the people. The people are not there to serve the economy. And so in New Zealand, I think they got that. And Jacinda Ardern got it, and she put well-being at the top of the tree. And the, and everything else was subservient to the notion of well-being. And Angela Merkel did not dissimilar things in Germany. Uh, female leaders who, who understood the need for well-being, empathy and kindness in Jacinda Ardern's uh, uh, philosophical uh, premise and other countries who did not take, to the extent that Jacinda Ardern did, that ethical uh, posturing. Australia did well. I think, I think uh, I've been asked in numerous forums, you know, did Australia do the right thing? I think it did, and I think it did it in a reasonably timely fashion insofar as you cannot implement draconian measures of removing people's liberties and freedoms in a single day. So we had to work towards that, and I think uh, full credit to the Prime Minister and the National Cabinet and the uh, and the Chief Health Officers for navigating a, a you know highly complex um, political and social and economic uh, environment. And I think Australia has done reasonably well. So I'd certainly put that on the record. The, the recovery phase, I think, unfortunately, we're slipping back into economic supremacy, and we've lost that sense of well-being. We've lost that sense of caring for others and we're getting back to the grindstone and people having to work hard again. Nothing wrong with working hard, but we've lost the narrative about well-being. And and I think to your to your point that that we had an opportunity, and I think it's still there, based on this rupture of COVID nineteen and this shifting of global value, to seize upon that, question our current political ideologies and underpinning philosophies that drive us so hard towards a set of values that we're not comfortable with and arrest that and say, well, can we rebalance this? Uh, can we put well-being and happiness at the top of the tree and can we make the economy and everything that comes with it subservient to that objective? And let's all work towards that. But that's not in the narrative now. That's gone and now it's back to economic figures, GDP, employment rates, uh, and so it goes on. Now, I'm, I'm not saying they're not important. I'm not, I, don't, I don't have a binary argument on this, but it is a question of emphasis. And the emphasis of well-being of the people has yet again disappeared. So I think that's my cautionary note, that the opportunity is rapidly slipping away to reframe and rephrase uh, the social narratives that become common sense over time. The common sense narrative at the moment is smaller government deregulation, contestability, outsourcing, entrepreneurship, self-sufficiency and non-reliance upon others or the government. And um, that might be suitable for some people, but if you hit hard times, if you're not well, if you lose your job, that just doesn't work. But for a lot of people, that's common sense. So common sense to me is how do we look after each other uh, in a sensible, uh, responsible way? And everybody can participate in that. I mean, people have responsibilities to be as self-sufficient as possible, but they need as much opportunity as possible to be that way. You're listening to the Allegorical Life podcast. So, Mark, my next question is really two-pronged. Firstly, I wanted to see what you think will change as a result of COVID, but I wonder if you also see that changing already with how the Black Lives Matter experience has really moved onto the global stage. It, it shows... Um, look, I think with COVID-19 followed by the death of George Floyd as, as a symbol of what's wrong in our 
societal systems and philosophies and ideologies is um, is like a um, it's it's like a sonic boom that's gone through the world. You know, it's an unexpected explosion of dissatisfaction. I mean, America is not happy. Um, you know, the world fundamentally is not happy. I think I wrote a blog last year called, you know, intimating the perpetual state of rage that many people are in, that they're constantly expressing dissatisfaction. Um, it's a really complex issue. I think uh, there is a need for rebalancing. Um, it's it's encouraging and impressive to see people take a stand for what's right in, in terms of race relations, in terms of health and well-being of others. Um, and it's easy to do it on any given day. Um, we, but I think the biggest challenge is we have to do it every day. And and so I hope that the sonic boom doesn't disappear and then people settle back into um, ambivalence or some sense of helplessness. And and I've also got a very cautionary note about the violence that's been attached to some of these protests. So I, I just I just cannot support it on any level. And and I get disappointed when I hear commentators saying that maybe it's okay to be violent. It's probably okay to be violent if you're dishing it out, but it's never okay to be violent if you're on the receiving end of it. So given the complex landscape at the moment, both locally and internationally, how can companies and leaders best lead out from here? And what do you think the biggest challenges will be in the coming months? I I think um, I always talk about global leaders being great symbols of where humanity is currently at. So, you know, Donald Trump is a great symbol of the attitudes of many, many millions of Americans. You know, so many people get angry with Donald Trump because of what he says and what he does. Um, And you can kind of understand that. Um, but it's what he symbolises, uh, I think, is more concerning. Um, I think leaders underestimate um, how much that their thoughts, words and actions actually matter and have an effect on other people. And any leader will hold over over others um, equities of power, wealth and resource. They'll have access to those things which other people don't have access to. So how are they going to use those in order to make life better for everybody, including themselves and meeting their objectives? But but I tend to find increasingly leaders have no real consciousness or understanding of those equities and how they can be used. Um, the second point I'd make is that people like Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel and others are in relationship with their constituency. They, they on some level make efforts to relate to what other people are going through and make decisions upon that basis. And I think any leader has that obligation, public or private, to to consider the needs of others, to consider the effects of, on others and to find that middle path and that, that, that wiser way of doing things which lessens the grief and suffering and harm of others and encourages or moves towards a much better place of happiness and well-being. Those things never go away as desires, Jordan. That every every human thought is predicated upon avoiding suffering and finding happiness. Everything we say, think, or do is trying to move off something and move towards something else. Um, so that's not going to go away. That's the that's the way we're conditioned. It's the way we think. Uh, it's the way we speak, and it's the way we act. So there's a chance to rebalance here. I go right back to where we started about well-being uh, of of humanity and. How can leaders contribute to that such that economies do flourish, that profitability is is present, that it's shared in a sensible way, that people do step up and put in effort, that, you know, nobody gets a free ride, so to speak, 
but we do support those who are doing it tough, mentally, physically or spiritually or otherwise. Um, make sure there are proper safety nets in place, but but pull everybody together and head in a direction that that you know opens up the opportunity for as many people as possible to flourish. And um, that's not the world we uh, that, that we left in COVID nineteen before COVID nineteen. That was not where the world was at. We'd run the risk of going back to that world if we don't take the lessons. So, so I think leaders have um, an enormous opportunity to stop, reflect, reframe, connect with those that they lead understand how to do that, um, take the examples of global leadership where that has clearly failed and try not to be like that and cut a different path, uh, taking the exemplars of, as I said, people like Jacinda Ardern or Angela Merkel and study their leadership style and traits and do the best they can to emulate or, or use those leadership styles as an exemplification of what leaders themselves are capable of. Then, then I think we just we we set it set course on a different path, which is still going to be hard work. I mean, we we didn't come here for a picnic, you know. We, it's a, life is tough. You know, life is a constant process of navigating complexity and problem. Um, but it can be made easier by putting well well being and happiness at the top of the tree for ourselves and for other people. And um, it's probably the hardest thing we'll have to do in our lives, Jordan. Be considerate of ourselves, be considerate of other people, and and genuinely. You know, do things that are for the the, the benefit, and well-being of ourselves at the same time. It's ethics at the end of the day, and it's uh, it's subordinated in current ideologies. Um, it's it's relegated to the private realm. Uh, it's not spoken about publicly. It's not allowed to be. When it is, it's weaponized. Um, that's got to stop. We've got to get back to what it means to be good, right, just, and well, and happy. Uh, and reframe societies and structures and leadership to as best as possible achieve those things with with due regard to economies, social policy and environmental outcomes and all those other important things that we pursue every day. Mark, do you have any tips for companies and businesses that may have been hit by COVID? You know, how do they bring in a focus on ethical leadership when really they could just be struggling to survive and to keep the doors open? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a really good question. <clears throat> it's it's um, some would argue that it's fine to speak ethically if you're privileged. Uh, I don't subscribe to that. I think at the end of the day, um, ethics ethics plays its greatest role in the depths of adversity and suffering, um, because because there's um, an opportunity to reframe. I think find out what's really important, but also ethics acknowledges more than acknowledges is capable of sitting in the space of great suffering and understanding it and and really getting to the depths of what it means to have a business fail or what it means to lose your income and lose your livelihood and perhaps even contemplate, um, uh, you know, mental health issues of depression and, and even worse, that ethics is in that space. Ethics says, no, no, I'm here with you all the way. It's not just a privileged position to say, let's make sure everybody's happy and well. Ethics can also go to the depths of the human mind or the depths of the human soul and be present and sit there and say, I get it, or I want to get it, I want to understand, I want to know what it's like for you and I want to know what can I do about it. That's an ethical response. And and that's what I mean by society, Jordan, getting back to its ethics. It's not just about judging people for being wrong or breaking rules or you know, being sinful or whatever, evil, um, that's a very superficial view of ethics. Ethics does its best work 
where people are in their darkest hour. That, that's It's really where it does its best work, Jordan. That's why I set up Ethical Intelligence to help people get that and help leaders really understand what it meant. There was a, a, a minister who'd been a minister for 21 years when I, who I interviewed for my PhD who, who really helped me understand this. He said that, uh, and he used the example of having to make a decision about um, a woman who was incarcerated who was pregnant and was about to give birth and the department had recommended that the child be surrendered upon birth and fostered out while she served her term in prison. And he was about to sign the papers and his conscience said, look, I'm not comfortable with this. So he, much to the chagrin of the department, he asked to go and visit the prisoner in her cell and they facilitated that. So he went into the jail, went to her cell, sat down and said, tell me your story, I want to understand. And she did. And he was so moved by the story that he came back, he ripped up the papers and he said to the department, let her keep the child. And that's my decision and my decision is final. Um, she ended up becoming a, a good friend of his over the, you know, the next few years and she married and had three other children and she's now a very successful citizen. But he, through his ethics, went to the depths of her suffering and concern, sat with her and said, help me to understand. There's many, many more examples in my research, uh, Jordan, that showed that capacity for relationship, that ca capacity to be vulnerable as a leader and to sit in the space and hold space with another who was suffering and to do something about it. I just find that inspiring and it's, it's, it's arising every day in lived experience. Um, uh, COVID-19 is providing infinite opportunities for that to happen and it is happening. And that's really the, that's the ethics we need to express in society. I think it become much more confident and competent in how we do that. Thanks for joining us today on The Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.